Welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Dario Linares. So, it's the end of year special. Wherever you all are, here's wishing you the very best of holiday relaxation or festive cheer. But if neither of those apply, and you're just looking for an hour or so to escape into some hopefully moderately diverting film chat, then that's what we're here to supply. So accompanying me on this cinematic review of 2022, it's my great pleasure to welcome the film critic Clarice Lockery to the podcast. Clarice, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I'm very excited to be here. I have to confess, we have to confess that this is being recorded before Christmas, so we're not going to pretend that we've just mainlined a ton of turkey or mince pies or cheap sherry and are on the verge of kind of family disintegration at this point. But Clarice, in, in true podcast kind of time travel fashion, what kind of Christmas do you envisage having or will have had by the time that this goes out? Oh, it's going to be a very quiet one for me this year because my dad's partner is going on a lovely health retreat as a treat for herself. So it's just me and my dad. And I feel like because it's just me and my dad, he's making he's making minimal effort. <laughs> and I support that. I yeah. don't judge him. He's not cooking. He's ordering something off like a local restaurant. We'll probably watch some TV and that'll be it. But I like that. I'm not a huge Christmas person. I'm a big Halloween person and I went large on Halloween. So I'm very satisfied. How about you? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm honestly, I'm a bit of a Grinch. I'm pretty bad. And and I kind of play along just for peace and peace and quiet a lot of the time. But honestly, by about 4.30 on Christmas Day, that's it. I've had it. It's like, let's get, let's get mm. things open. Let's get back to normal. I'm a much bigger fan, actually, of not even New Year, but the, like the time in between Christmas and New Year and being able to kind of think about what's coming up. I, I'm a sort of, I know it's an arbitrary date, but that sort of sense of what what things can you change? What things can you do differently? What might the year bring? I, I kind of like using New Year for that. I like that. I, I hate a New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> I despise it because right. you put, everyone always puts too much pressure on themselves because you always say this year is going to be my year and it, it never is, is it? <laughs> I also got hit by firework one New Year's oh, Eve. God. So <laughs> I've had quite bad luck. <laughs> it was okay. Nothing nothing terrible happened. Uh, it just destroyed my only ever design address I've ever owned. It was a Calvin Klein that I found in Bloomingdale's in New York and I loved it so dearly and it had a giant singed burnt crater hole in it by the end of that night which was upsetting <laughs> so there's just mega trauma attached to New Year yeah. don't like reflecting so when that film New Year came out I don't want to see your review of it oh no no <laughs> I don't like reflecting <laughs> don't like looking about how right. looking back or thinking about how I can be a better person because I'm a very anxious okay. soul that's happening year I round I don't need a dedicated night okay. for it okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally on board with that. But I mean, at least we c here we can reflect on, on other people's 2022, particularly in, yes. in film. But before we get to that, maybe you can tell us a little bit about where the main forums are, where, where people can find your critical voice, so to speak. Oh, yes. Uh, so everything I always post on Twitter Clarice Lockery at Clarice Lou. I've started using Instagram a lot more because of certain events around Twitter. <laughs> Let's just say that. So that's 
Clarice Lockery, Clarice.Lockery, I think. Er I, yeah, everything's there, but also most of my review writing, which is the main chunk of my work, is on The Independent. And I've got my own little author tab on there. So it's all there. Brilliant. And you've, you've also subbed on the Mark Kermode and Simon Mail show at one point. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Which was incredibly fun and terrifying. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like podcasts because there's a little bit less pressure because you can edit out if I say something really silly. Uh, but in radio, there's no chance to take it back, whatever you've said. And it's <laughs> it's not even anything dramatic, but you know, sometimes if you're panicky and in the moment, you might say something you don't quite believe, and then you're like attached to that opinion for the rest of your life. Uh, <laughs> so I might say like, oh, I don't really like Tom Cruise, and that would be a lie. I do like Tom Cruise, but then you have to stand by it because you said it on live radio. You know, it's... <laughs> It's tricky. <laughs> You're on the right show, though, because we're big Tom Cruise fans over here. We, we, we love talking about sort of stardom and his role in that. We've done that, obviously, this summer with, with Top Gun, which maybe we'll mention uh, at, at some point today. But were you, were you a film buff at an early age? You know, did you get a sort of the movie bug when you were a kid? Yes and no. I think the the massive turnaround moment for me was when I was 12 years old, and my parents rented The Others with Nicole Kidman. Oh, wow. Which is okay. a f yeah. fantastic film. I wouldn't, I mean, now I wouldn't necessarily be like, it's the greatest movie ever made. But there was something about her performance in that, playing a woman who has done one of the worst imaginable things. I won't spoil it in case anyone's not seen it. And and for me to sort of like first learn the the power of is it Roger Ebert always said you know cinema is the empathy machine I think me coming away from that movie and still understanding this woman who did this horrific thing was such a a mind explosion moment for me I still remember it so clearly and Nicole Kidman is still my favorite actor and I refuse to drop that. <laughs> She can wow. be in whatever she likes yeah, yeah, and do yeah, no. whatever performances. I don't care how bad they are. <laughs> I will stand by her <laughs> because of that. I think, yeah, that was really th the moment, but I didn't necessarily want to go into film writing until it kind of had already happened. I just knew I wanted to be somewhere within the movie making process because I was so enamored with it and it was such a magical world to me. So I'm incredibly lucky that I am where I am today. I'm very thankful. Yeah. Yeah, Kidman's an interesting character because I think the I think people kind of associate her with, with a certain type of role, but if you actually look at, at the role she takes, there there's quite a lot of radical stuff in there, you know? Yeah, I think especially now because of her TV work, she's been playing a lot of like brittle rich women <laughs> which she's great at but that is not who she mm. is yeah, yeah, yeah you know as a whole i think the northman is a great example that's the nicole kidman that i know is in the northman and to die for and and the others and birth birth is unbelievably good here yeah. incredible and I think because she's sort of easy to impersonate, like we know the AMC ad, <laughs> the whole oh, heartbreak is heartbreak feels good in a place like this. Like I, I get it. I think people bring that image to performances and they don't really think about the actual like actor's work going on behind like the accent and the face. <laughs> 
And that scene in the Paperboy, for example, you know, that's very different from the AMC yes, ad. <laughs> I love the Paperboy. Fantastic movie, fantastic performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so our usual format on the end of year review is that we we run down five films of the year, our five favorite films, and they can be in order if you like, or just your highlights. I know some people have got an aversion to sort of the hierarchy of the list and, and all that kind of thing. But we also mentioned highlights that didn't quite make the list. But maybe we can talk a little bit about you know, maybe a few stories that have occurred in film culture and, and what we see in 2022 with regards to what's going on in, you know, in film more broadly. Yeah, I just wondered whether there's anything that sort of, um, you know, pinged into your mind with, with regards to that. I mean, I, I suppose one of the, the big ones for me was coming out of, still kind of coming out of lockdown. I'm not going to say post-pandemic because clearly, you know, we're not post-pandemic, but that sense of the the relationship between cinema going and streaming seems to be still high on on people's agenda and and how that relates to where film and cinema sits culturally you know what i mean how important it is how significant it is what it's what's its relationship to television you know there was an article in the new york new york times recently that was about the how well-financed prestige dramas are just not making any money so when do we get to the point where these films actually don't have a, a they're not even worth being made in the first place to to Hollywood do you know what I mean I, I mean I know I've said a few things there but but I wondered if you if you had any thoughts yeah I, I agree about this year has really been cinema reflecting globally what's going on because you know we there's no need to get too deep into it but you know we're in a recession there's a there's a feeling of crisis about ideas of of labor and exploitation of labor obviously in the uk widespread strikes and i think that has really affected the world of film as well you know i'm thinking of the stories that came out this year about vfx teams working for i mean several studios marvel was mentioned a lot the horrific working conditions to to create the movies that we like was was hard to read what happened with hbo max so many shows being pulled, cancelled, basically obliterated off the face of the earth for a tax break. You know, I, I but I, I think it's hard for me because I, whenever I'm asked to talk about those kinds of issues, to me, it's, they're really just a symptom of, of wider things. And I think maybe that's something that the film community should be thinking about in 2023 and i don't mean that in like a lecturing way <laughs> uh but to remember that like our industry is no different from from all the other industries and and when we talk about you know how do we make great cinema that also includes treating workers well respecting artists like those are i think are the conversations that are going to happen a lot in the next year and hopefully for the better hopefully good things will happen it's so interesting to me anyway how the biggest film if you're talking about box office of the year was Top Gun Maverick and it seems to be it cuts across symbolically a lot of the things that you were talking about there because if you just look there was a lot of criticism you know about how it's just this nostalgia fest and it harks back to a kind of American imperialism and an obsession with technology and the military uh, you know an aging star who really you know, he's. I mean, in some ways, he's he's the closest representation to a kind of the old school notion of of a Hollywood star that that still has that that sort of level of status that Tom Cruise has got. Um, but yet, the the film industry seems to have 
linked to that film as being the kind of, you know, savior picture. And in a similar way that maybe the Bond movie did the year before. And it seems to be kind of completely blind to the idea that 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 doesn't seem sustainable, really. And no matter how good, you know, and exciting and probably better for me anyway than watching the CGI fests of the Marvel movies, you know, as, as a, just a watching experience. I'd much go, rather go see Top Gun than, than those films. But still, it doesn't speak really to a, a more sustainable film culture in the future, I would say. No, and, you know, I really enjoyed Top Gun Maverick. And I think there is a lot about it that Hollywood could learn lessons about how to make great franchise movies. But I, yeah, I, I didn't really come away from it as like, this is the savior of Hollywood. Like (laughs) this is what cinema should always be. I think for me, the better example of that, what felt like a big victory to me was how well everything everywhere all at once did, because that was a fairly low budgeted film, a VFX team that, was very small and I think they were all working on Zoom together like it was <laughs> but you know, we're treated as artists and respected. And lots of people are talking about awards chances and and you know how should it win Best Picture. I don't know if I'm I'm that far with the movie, but I think as a film that really broadly appealed to people, to have that be the movie that connected to, to everyone it's quite sweet. Like I like that. I that to me is like that's that's an ideal. Is if that movie was the highest grossing movie of the year. <laughs> no, no, for sure. And I think I, there is a, a a sort of sense of what that movie does is is appeal to the idea that the democratization of of the image and technology in a more positive sense. In in like you say that there's a, a low budget approach to something that looks big and spectacular, which think is um, you know more of a a kind of sustainable idea going forward especially you know we talk about that with our students a lot in terms of how do you make something look professional on next to no money that's what we have what they have to do a lot of the time anyway as a big social media user what's your sort of i mean i know you you sort of mentioned there you've moved maybe across a little bit more to to instagram but there's always a problematic relationship between social media and every area of culture but this year it seems that there's more and more interesting kind of either a on the one side just gossip and i'm thinking about all the furore around don't worry darling and then just a kind of obsession with how do specific films fit into say current political discourses and maybe i'm thinking about something like blonde when i'm mentioning that i mean what's your sort of take of the relationship between social media film twitter and and cinema broadly you know I'm going to get the positive out of the way first because I don't want to sound too bitter and hateful towards it because I I think I do probably owe quite a good chunk of my career to it. It's a really great platform to get your work out, to get your voice out, and also build a community. And I, I don't want to ignore those things when I'm about to trash it. <laughs> but I do think, I am of the opinion that social media as a whole is really quite damaging psychologically to people because the whole idea of the timeline and the likes and retweets funnel is that it it creates extremity out of normal opinions you can't just you know like you can't just really tweet out 
like the, the blonde's a great example because I was very mixed on it. There's things I really enjoyed about it and things that I didn't, but you can't really tweet that out. You have to go, yeah, you have to go, Blonde is a masterpiece. It is the greatest movie ever made. Or like, I would like to take Blonde out to an alley and shoot it. You know, it's it. the language becomes so completely out of touch with reality. And I find myself doing it sometimes. I tweet something out and I go... Oh, that's a bit ridiculous. Why did I phrase it like that? That's ridiculous. But you sort of have to. You have to to get the more nuanced work to be seen. Uh, so I, I think that entire function has been really, has had really, as you said, with Don't Worry Darling, and I'm thinking as well just this week with the news about Wonder Woman 3 not oh, going yeah, yeah, forward yeah. and Patty Jenkins perhaps stepping away, this entire narrative was created where she was having fights with James Gunn and I just found it so ridiculous because these are adults in a professional business situation <laughs> who uh, uh, seem very democratic, Very, it just didn't work for whatever reason and they walked away for now, maybe they'll come back and when she had to post an entire statement about it to clarify, my heart kind of sank because I just went, Oh, is this is this who we are now? That we're trying to turn a very normal part of production into like a cat fight, <laughs> and there is sort of a misogynistic aspect to it as well because it, you know it's Patty Jenkins, it's Olivia Wilde, it's not Martin Scorsese that they're making these stories about, you know. <laughs> no, 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 it's for, it, it's very true, and and also though it's it's part of the the mainstream machinery of blockbuster conversation do you know what i mean it's again i've said this a million times on the podcast it's like i haven't got anything against blockbuster movies or even comic book blockbuster movies and they're not my cup of tea but i've got nothing against them if i see one that i think is good i'd say that but it's the machinery and the that sort of you have to talk about this it's important you know what i mean and like like that sort of sense of if you're not part of that conversation then you're not part of film conversation which i think is utterly ridiculous which is why we we don't cover that kind of stuff on this podcast particularly yeah and and i get stuck in a sticky situation because i i do quite i do quite like a lot of the marvel stuff i enjoy it earnestly and I have always just taken each individual film as it comes, but that does not function on the internet. It's this idea of the brand loyalty. And people assume that I must be on one side, that either I hate all superhero movies or I love all of them. It's like, it's not either of those. I like the ones that I like because they're movies and I treat them the same as I would The Northman or Everything Everywhere All At Once or After Sun. Like, they're all pieces of creative work to me. So I think, yeah, the Twitter has just done horrific damage to having normal adult conversations about blockbusters. <laughs> but like you say, though, I'm, ag- I'm in agreement of how useful Twitter has been, particularly for us on the podcast. But what I'm talking about is Twitter of 2013, 2014 version, where there wasn't the algorithm that was that was kind of funneling the the hate and the anger as being the thing that got gets the most clicks and that gets the most likes and all that kind of stuff. Because you were you could expand your own channel or you know your own content in a way that that wasn't sort of if you didn't if you didn't go for stuff that was at the extremity, you'd still be just on the same timeline as everyone else but that that's not the case so i agree with that but it's yeah it's a pity now that that's kind of gone away and i don't know whether we'd we'd have got the audience that we we do now without 
without social media. So I don't know whether the next platform is is going to whether something is going to come up that actually properly does replace Twitter. It's tricky. I don't I don't really use Twitter for fun that much anymore. I post my work and then I leave and I go to TikTok yeah, yeah, yeah. where there's the thing with the algorithm with TikTok is that it finds out exactly what you like, incredibly niche things. So I just watch videos. There's like a thing now where there's like a baby puppet that's flying around and it looks so carefree and happy. And there's no, there's no conversation on it. <laughs> there's no, no one's having opinions or hot takes or trying to drag people down. It's like, no, no, it's just baby puppet. He's flying around. <laughs> and I, somehow oddly to me that feels less psychologically damaging than going on twitter and trying to engage in the conversations that are happening even though they are of i guess like an intellectual nature (laughs) i would rather look at the puppet at this point the thing about tiktok i think is is i mean i was reading this somewhere and, and again this is a this is a stat I'm quoting without actually having it in front of me. So apologies for that. But I read that there is more hours spent on TikTok between, you know, on, on, in the youth age group, say 16 to 25, than the entire, all of the streaming services combined, which is, you know, interesting to say the least. And I think it, if you think about the way that, that TikTok works in, in the sense that, uh, of that there is no choice, yeah, the algorithm will figure out what you're going to like, but you don't, you're not choosing any channels at all. That's a real kind of mind explosion for what we think of the way that people engage with media, you know? Yes, although I'm sorry to defend TikTok. <laughs> I think the reason that people spend so much time on it is that I will say the algorithm is very sophisticated because sure, sure, sure. the way that my timeline on TikTok works at the moment, it knows what the next like media thing I'm going to like is before it's even aired or before I've watched it. It's like predicted, oh, you're really going to like this character from this piece of media. And I'm like, who is that? And then I watch the thing and I'm like, you were correct. I'm obsessed yeah, with yeah, this yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. So I think... It, I think the reason for its popularity is that is that it's quite insular and comforting and I just get to look at the things that I like and I don't have to engage with I don't have to engage and also because it's video if you don't like the beginning of a video you skip past it which with a tweet you're sort of locked into reading the whole thing and you see something and it makes you angry and then it's like blowing up with TikTok it's like it's so easy to block out anything negative which is maybe what social media should be it should just be a place of comfort i don't know Mm. no no it's an incredibly sophisticated you know social media you know the the most sophisticated one in 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 that sense i think yeah so interesting stuff i mean yeah is there anything else that that pops into mind about 2022 well maybe as a bridge to our list of films although i don't know how many would actually be on my list the pattern that i've noticed in terms of what directors are putting out, very, like, (laughs) you can tell that everyone's been in lockdown for a while, trapped with their own thoughts, because it feels like every director has made something that is either autobiographical, or even if it's not, I'm thinking even of white noise, which is obviously not autobiographical about Noah Baumbach in any way, but it's such a sort of odd choice for him. And it feels like he's thinking about the world in a way that Noah Baumbach doesn't usually do. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, he was in lockdown for a long time and he was thinking about things and he probably read 
white noise and went, ah. Uh, <laughs> so I feel like so many films this year, I was like, oh, this is the thing they conceived while they didn't have anything to do or anywhere to go all day. Yeah, and in the intro to your independent piece, I think you were right in, in terms of that sort of self-reflexivity. Some of it is quite introspectively trying to deal with existential questions of of you know what is life all about but some of it is also quite narcissistic so it <laughs> depends on the director which, which which discourse they've gone down i suppose yeah and sometimes it's difficult to tell them between those two yeah. things because you have to be a little <laughs> narcissistic true. to ask the real questions about yourself i think armageddon time is a great example where it's like it's sort of a bit narcissistic, but I like that he airs that about himself, and I appreciate that he did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and probably, I haven't seen that one, but Bardo is definitely on that uh, spectrum as well. Wow. <laughs> yes. Yes, I I liked it, but the man really put every thought in his brain into the movie, yeah, which yeah, yeah. is sort of good and overwhelming at the same time <laughs> sure yeah sure yeah no i mean it's funnily enough I, I mean i saw bardo at the london film festival i didn't i didn't hate it i think there was a lot of kind of like oh it's in Aritu, so let's just hate on it without really kind of thinking but it is there's everything that's in his brain is is on the screen and you kind of in some ways you've got to kind of admire that if, it's like almost somebody's gone up to him with 150 million dollars and say and said have all the candy that you want, then you're going to go, okay, why not? You know what I mean? Yeah, Netflix went, we're going to give you a few million to adapt your therapy sessions into <laughs> a feature-length film. And he went, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he got it all out as well in terms of criticizing the critics, which I thought was uh, quite funny. Yeah, that's what I think. And now it's out. This is why I'm quite excited for what happens after this, because every director has had their little moment of internal crisis and now we move, like, what does Inaritu do next? I'm very interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, we'll go, We'll come to your, your sort of top five in a second, but are there any films that didn't quite get there, but you just, you, you did really love that you want to mention? I, oh, it's hard, because I loved a lot of things. <laughs> I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, it's been a bad year in film. I've never said that once in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to... I was thinking of saying Neptune Frost, which is uh, a musical set in Burundi, which is co-directed by Saul Williams and sort of shaped around his music, but also co-directed with his partner, Enizia Uziaman. Uh, and it's just, I think I wanted to pick that one because it's so unlike anything else I watched this year. And I have always really personally been drawn to the hyper-imaginative and this sort of like techno futuristic, uh, they it's about um, like an intersex runaway and a coltan miner, and they cross away from their homes into a different dimension where they find uh, like a hacking collectivist. <laughs> it's really hard to describe <laughs> um, group who are like fighting back against the colonialism, but mostly the concept in colonialism that the people who own the material goods also own everything. They own every idea. They own the the concept of gender. And so there's this little group in this different dimension that are, are fighting back. And it's yeah, it's also a musical. <laughs> And I just thought it was incredible and to have such like radical, like really concrete radical political ideas, but presented in like quite a fun, 
it's quite fun. <laughs> a fun movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was fantastic. It was so unlike anything I've seen. Honestly, looking at your top 15 that's on that independent list, what you just said there about the kind of hyper-fantastical which is a great phrase, it does sort of weave its way through the, the, the choices that you've made, which is really, really interesting, I think, for our conversation as well, because I think we are, do have quite different tastes in, uh, in, in films. So it'd be interesting to sort of reflect on that, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. When I, when I came to put my list together, I, I drew up the list and I went, oh, The Banshees of Inishirin isn't on there. And it's a movie I loved. And has featured on, I would say, almost every other top 10 list I've seen. And I was about to go, oh, no, I got to put it in there. And I, I stopped myself and I went, well, actually, no, because everyone else is going to cover that. And it's one of those things where it is a beautifully crafted movie. It's so well done. It's magnificent. But it's it's not the sort of movie that I might naturally do be drawn towards i yeah that's the thing it's just who i am and i realized recently there's no point fighting it i like surreal things i like weird things <laughs> there's maybe movies on that list that i know other people hated and i i really accept that and i'm good with it but it's just i gotta be me i gotta be me <laughs> no no I've, well of course i mean that that's the i suppose that's the 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 big question about how anybody formulates any list that we've been having with the release of the sight and sound poll alongside kind of coming to the end of this year particularly and and that idea of any film that we watch is as much about us as it is about the film in terms of whether we would place it on a list for our, for ourselves no matter how objective you want to be in your in your criteria because i mean you know some of the other stuff that you've got on there that's not in the top 5 which we won't repeat i mean there's nothing in there that that i absolutely hated i mean nope is an interesting example as is as is elvis two two films that are kind of quite a lot about spectacle do you know what i mean in different ways Yes, and I think I, I'm just very attracted to that realm because I I think I enjoy films that acknowledge the inherent falseness of the medium. You know, that's the thing. It's not reality. Even documentary, it's not reality. It's a catered form of reality that an artist has put together. Uh, and so... You know, when people are discussing like hyper realistic, like kitchen sink dramas, like, oh, this is so grounded. I re respect th that approach so much, but part of my brain goes, oh, but why, why would I want that? I live, I live life. <laughs> I don't need to have it reflected back to me. I, what I want is the internal part of my brain the, that I can't really access to be projected onto the screen. And I think movies like Elvis, Elvis is a great example because it's not a movie about Elvis Presley, right? It's not a, really a biopic or about the man that actually lived and died. It's about the inflated concept of Elvis and the American imagination of this like, and also the contrast between it of like, he caused a sexual revolution, but also did he appropriate another people's like music, but... Also, was he rebelling against something or was he being controlled? Like, those things don't necessarily relate, I think, to the everyday experience of being Elvis. But they're so essential to when you're talking about Elvis that I like that Baz Luhrmann when, you know what, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just gonna not bother even trying to reflect the real history. 
I'm, I'm just gonna do pure spectacle, pure Elvis. I'm gonna throw a lot of ideas out there and you, the audience, do whatever you want with them because it's not my responsibility. <laughs> It's a fascinating idea that because it just relates to what you said about sort of realism. You know, I talk to the students a lot about even even that is constructed. It's a constructed version of realism. So therefore you have to reckon with the idea of what 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 do we mean when we say something is realist? You know, what is what is constructed into making that that idea, you know? But then also, I mean, what you just said there about about Elvis is again, it could apply to to Andrew Dominic and Blonde, which we mentioned previously in the same way, but I just think that what's interesting is that fell into that that argument of there are so many people with a complete invested almost ownership over what they think Marilyn Monroe is and probably the same people have the you know there are people out there who have the same feelings about Elvis Presley but um I think probably Elvis was less polemic in terms of uh, in terms of its outcomes but perhaps in that sense yeah and I think because the tricky thing with blonde is the book is a very upfront about the fact that it is all symbolic. She doesn't use Joyce Carol Oates, doesn't use like the names of anybody involved, but the film does. So it makes it a little bit harder for the viewer to separate, to go, well, this is not meant to be Marilyn Monroe at all. In a way that Elvis in the movie is still kind of Elvis, Marilyn Monroe in Blonde should not be Marilyn Monroe. She should just be the blonde, the blonde woman. <laughs> a starlet. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then it makes it tricky. What I struggled with is, well, now you're implanting a lot of ideas of the sort of sexual violence that she underwent, which is obviously very sensitive in ways that Elvis didn't really have that stuff. Uh, no, absolutely. And yeah, 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 and it gets tricky. And I, I didn't have the same sort of like angry reaction to it other people did because I think... Uh, some of the ideas of trauma that it talked about were incredibly powerful, especially childhood trauma and how she carries that through her life. And she can't, it's so difficult for her to escape it and her mother's shadow. I thought it was incredibly done. I was so moved. But then, yeah, there's other stuff where I'm like, uh, this worked better in the book. And even the book I thought was, I had questions about. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm kind of still in, in, in two minds about a lot of the, you know, the, the the questions about how much representation feeds into people's notion of a of a person historically you know somebody who actually lived and where the kind of morality of that is if you're a filmmaker but also i'm really i don't like being told that i shouldn't watch something because i don't have the capacity to form my own opinion about it which i think was the thing that rubbed me up the wrong way most yeah, a couple of things that I just want to quickly ma- mention. One film I really liked was the was After Yang, the the low key science fiction that delves into the territory of um, how AI might lead us to this question of the very concept of humanity. I mean, it's not it's not something that's revelatory. You know, you can go back a thousand uh, science fiction movies do that. But also, it, it kind of taps into this idea of of why and how we strive for an authentic life and what the the ways in which technology are, are, are forcing us to kind of confront that and and it tapped into some of those ideas in really interesting ways i thought and the other one was the, the other one i just quickly wanted to mention was vortex gaspar noe's film which is like this cine literate brutal depression movie um so it's an aging couple dealing with physical and mental decline and it is really really 
bleak to the point where it kind of makes Amor look like a sweet rom-com. But it's if you can get if you can kind of stick with it and really kind of commit, it's an incredibly poignant piece of work. And and again, these standout performances from Dario Argento and Francois Lebrun, it really makes you sort of confront that idea of of decline. And yeah, even saying that, I'm, I kind of realise that listeners will be like, I just can't, I don't want to deal with that shit at Christmas time. Do you know what I mean? But you know, for those who are kind of committed to sort of cinephilia and uh, yeah, I think it's really worth a, a really worth a look. Have you seen either of those? I saw both. After Yang was another that I very nearly put in my list. I guess I just have something against Colin Farrell. I don't. I love Colin Farrell, but I don't know why I excluded <laughs> both of his films. <laughs> Didn't even put the Batman either. It's been. A, I'm so sorry, Colin Farrell. Uh, Vortex, I, I appreciate it. I think for me, it was a little too cruel. There was a thing with the way that he shot it with the, the double... Like split the screen frame, yeah, yeah, the yeah. split screen uh where it, it meant that like the 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 man and wife never touched or they sent they seemed so physically disconnected from each other and i understand why he did it and i appreciate it but for me it was too heartbreaking and i i just felt like this man didn't deserve it <laughs> uh but it's not you know this is one of those things where you know when you watch a film and I have no sort of negative feelings towards it, but it, I I think the experiment that he did <laughs> just didn't quite work for me. But I'm again, I'm glad that he did it. That's my feeling about a lot of movies where I give them three stars. It's like, sure. I'm so glad the person made the movie yeah, yeah, yeah. to see whether it worked. It didn't work for me, but it was good that we saw. We saw whether it worked. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, it's so fascinating, isn't it? The sort of star system where like three stars often means people kind of assume that it's like meh, but it can actually mean there's like parts of it that are five star and parts of it that are one star. Do you know what I mean? And like, if you pick out the bits that you really liked and talk about those, it could be a five star movie, but it, that's why it's, you know, any of these kind of ratings is uh, in imprecise science to put, to say the least. Yeah. And people always assume that I hate stuff if I don't give it four or five stars. And I feel like, I feel like I'm quite clear when I don't like something. <laughs> I feel like I'm hoping this is the intent that it comes across in the language because it's it's quite rare that I actively dislike a movie. And when I dislike, I'm I'm all going all in, <laughs> and it should be obvious. <laughs> yeah, there's been there's maybe we can talk about this at the end. There's been one or two films that I I really disliked this this year, but we'll stay with the positive stuff right now. So, do you want to tell us about your number five on the list? Yes. Um. So it's the worst person in the world. Uh, which I think probably featured on a lot of lists. <laughs> uh, and I think because I am around the same age as Julie Renata Reinsfer's character, and I think I'm going through a lot of the same things that she's going through, this idea, what, what really got to me is how kind of suffocating having limitless choice can feel even though that feels so ironic to say and almost like quite privileged <laughs> but i i do believe that is where some of the crisis of being a millennial comes from is that we are at least told that we can do anything we want and we can have careers or have kids or live anywhere in the world marry anybody 
but that is a little bit of an illusion. And I think that comes into it and how she sort of drifts from career to career. She's like, uh, she goes to medical school and she wants to be a psychologist and then she wants to be a photographer, which I kind of did something similar. So I get that. And then she gets into a relationship with a graphic artist who's an older man. Then he reveals that he wants kids. She's like, well, <laughs> so she goes off to the bartender character. Uh, and it all comes down to that really beautiful scene, which probably everyone knows, where time stops and she gets to run through the streets because it's like the one moment where the world is not so loud because the world is incredibly loud and she gets that one little moment to just be like i understand what i want right now in this moment and like five minutes later she's gonna second guess herself again but it's so satisfying <laughs> to have that one opportunity to be like i know what i want it was one of those films where I was, when I was in it, I was really enjoyed watching it. It really sort of points to that question or that, again, the, you know, what I assume to be the, the millennial angst, though, even though I'm kind of pushing 50, I kind of understand that idea of how do we make choices in life, obviously. But that question of attaching ourselves to moments of immediate pleasure, then we base decisions on that very quickly and then you know, however long later, one month, six months, a year later, it's like, ah, this isn't, this isn't, this is no longer fun anymore in the way that it, that, that it was. And the, the, the sort of inability really of the character to kind of reconcile that sense that, that nothing has that level of pleasure or fulfillment in, in the, that sort of fleeting, immediate, frivolous kind of way, which she seems to want. Right at the very end, I think it becomes quite poignant when you get to the the end, and obviously the the first boyfriend, you know, falls ill, and she kind of realizes that these fleeting moments are, are, are in the grand scheme of things are not what life's about. Um, so I think it's a really it's a really good film, a really interesting film. I saw it in a very similar time frame as uh, of Paris Thirteenth District. Have you seen that film? Because I thought that I you know for me I enjoyed that I actually enjoyed that one probably even more. Yeah, you're right. They are quite similar, sort of like drifting. I remember a lot of drifting in that movie, but quite like in quite a mesmerizing way. And yeah, it's just the idea of indecisiveness, but taking a a very non-judgmental look at it and a genuine desire to understand like why is it so why is it so difficult? <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. So my number five and actually We'll have, we'll have to do this in a, a specific way. So my number five is After Sun, uh, the directorial debut of Charlotte Wells, but it may come up in a, in a little while on your list. So we'll leave that for now and we can talk about that together because I think it's coming later later on. So my my number four was No Bears by Jaffa Panahi. And I know that you you confided in me beforehand that you hadn't seen this. So so it's, uh, it's one to see for sure. I have a really... I mean, soft spot's the wrong word, but I have a real respect and love for Jaffa Panahi's filmmaking. And I feel that, I was writing about this, it's almost a duty for me to recommend his films as he's once again, you know, fallen foul of the tyranny of the Iranian regime. And this reflects his, his, his interests, this idea of kind of meta-narrative, meta-experiential themes that collapse drama and documentary representation and, and reality and you know interestingly it relates to what you were talking about before about the construction of the filmmaking process is front and center in his films but then the question of what is real 
is related to the idea of the of, of the very notion of constructedness. So it and often that is um, interwoven with political critiques of Iranian society in terms of you know the notion of the family and patriarchy and um, and religion and all of that kind of stuff. All of these are constructed and put on top of people and they react and their identities are, de- are defined around all of those kind of structures. So. It's just a master at these grand philosophical ideas and how they emerge out of smaller stories that that challenge traditions of of Iran and even sort of more universal traditions of society and culture. Have you seen a lot of Panahi's work previously? Oh, I'm trying to think. I have a terrible memory, so I usually have to revisit stuff before I watch. I've seen... I've seen a couple, but I can't remember which one. Have you seen Taxi Tehran or...? I think so, yeah. I think I saw it quite a long time ago. So I'm I'm the worst to ask about like things right. like <laughs> I, I have like a Memory. vague even when I was describing Paris 30 district it's like I can vaguely remember the film and I watched it this year it's really bad <laughs> There's too much culture there's too many films so you've got to see every and, and you will see more films than than I do I mean again that's one of the you know the the beauties but also the the chores of being a film critic you know seeing these films one after another yeah, and then my my best of the year is usually the films I actually remember in detail. <laughs> it helps it helps the decision process a lot because ninety percent will have just like which is no insult to the films they're incredible films but my brain can contain such limited information it's quite embarrassing. <laughs> well, definitely your number four is a film that I think as a lot of people have on their lists and is definitely memorable whether you like it or not. Yes, my number four. So this is the one where I think a lot of my friends were like, come on now, don't put this. <laughs> but it's Crimes of the Future because I I have such an allegiance to David Cronenberg. <laughs> and something about this, because I saw it after, I think it debuted at Toronto. And so I'd seen like a lot of like hubbub about it and a lot of people saying, oh my God, this is David Cronenberg returning to like the body horror classic, you know, the brood, David Cronenberg, David Cronenberg. But what I found so interesting about it is that it's not quite that to me. There is the body horror in it. I mean, there's a great scene where Leia Sudu like puts her entire hand inside Viggo Monson's like a crevice inside his body. Uh, but there's there, there's that touch of austerity. And I don't want to say coldness, but like, I guess a maturity, but not in the sense of like emotional maturity. <laughs> or like, not that. It's like a richness. It feels, it feels there's more of a richness to it than than some of the early Cronenberg. And I don't mean that as a negative towards the early Cronenbergs, of course. Um, but I liked the, I loved the combination of that. And, and to have like this completely ridiculous, but fantastical and amazing stuff, like the digestion chair, uh, which so Viggo Mortensen sits in and then it's like crunching his bones so that he can eat. Like that's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Fantastical, perfect. But he presents it with like this layer of sadness to it. And, and everyone is sort of floating through this near future world, trying to understand 
what art is and what sex is and I love the questions that this film asks because I came away from this and I was WhatsApp messaging my friend furiously this theory that <laughs> David Cronenberg was saying so surgery is the new sex that's the thing they always say in this movie but also surgery is art in the film because Leia Sadu does these operations on Viggo Mortensen in public and it's a performance art so surgery is sex surgery is art so sex must also be art and art is sex so through the watching of the film David Cronenberg is letting us have sex with the film that was my conclusion <laughs> and that's why I love it because it, it led me to have that thought which is silly <laughs> and I'm glad that I had it though if I'd have had that thought I probably would have enjoyed it an awful lot more. <laughs> 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 to be honest with you I, I'm on board with Cronenberg and that's why I was a little bit disappointed I have to say and I liked the first sort of half of it and the ideas that were being set up and that sort of that sort of sense of absolutely as you say where that sort of idea of sex and intimacy and all of these things have kind of been ironed out of society because of technology. And it's and it's interesting how it was sort of a throwback to analog culture. So I really enjoyed some of that stuff. And like, I enjoyed Kristen Stewart whispering. That was just amazing to me. I could have watched the whole film of that happening, you know. But I, I don't know. I just, I just got a little bit bored. I was like, where is this going? What is this doing? And I kind of wanted a bit of a little bit of, you know, the fly and it all going a bit mad towards the end and having a a sort of resolution and a conclusion, a bit of dramatic progression, let's say, that I didn't didn't find was there, you know? That was my big problem with it, really. No, and that is very fair because it's not... It doesn't feel as, like, tantalizing and exciting and experiential as his early stuff does. It does feel like a guy who is older and a bit like, I'm used to the body chairs now. This is not new to me. (laughs) And so the film doesn't really approach those ideas with much excitement, but that's what I liked about it. It's like, imagine this boring world where people sleep in in living wombs. I don't know. know, uh, Yeah, I loved it. No, no, the, the the production design and all that stuff is really fascinating, and all the makeup and all this kind of thing was yeah incredible to. And when they did uh, Leia Sidhu's face with the scars and all this kind of stuff, it's like wow, that was uh, yeah amazing to look at. Yeah, we'll move on. My number three is uh, Philip Barantini's Boiling Point, and this is a film that we did an episode on because it just re- resonated with me so deeply. I interviewed the director and we had a lot of things in common really in, in terms of our past and working in restaurants, which I did for many, many years. And as, as I said on the episode back then, it was it's the most authentic depiction of restaurant life in the UK that I've ever seen. You know, sometimes the one take device can be a little bit of a gimmick, I think, but it works absolutely perfectly in this movie. I think it was an amazing... And to listen to the way that they did it four times over and just did it all the way through and most of the script was was riffed basically you know they had points that they had to hit the cast Stephen Graham what can you say a a brilliant performance but I was really blown away by Vinette Robinson who plays kind of his second second in charge uh, second chef and she's got this one scene that that I said I said to him it reminded me of um, Joe Pesky in Goodfellas she just absolutely eviscerates this other member of staff and I was like wow that was unbelievably compelling and yeah I just I, I just remember being in the cinema and was kind of like as I say I worked in restaurants for 20 years and I have a recurring dream of that it's like the thing that makes me who I am but also the thing that I wish I didn't hadn't had gone through and this film just just 
twanged all of the nerves around that so so immensely you know yeah i wrote i actually wrote a little essay for the the recent blu-ray release that came out of it and my piece was about the reaction within the restaurant community because you're so right that i think i've i've had some experience in the service industry uh well it was like a breakfast shift at a hotel but it was pretty nightmarish so (laughs) there was a lot in boiling point that i i i recognized immediately and i think it became such a conversation point because some people in the industry were like this this is so truthful this is so reflective of the still existing problems that we have and then others were like no it's changed now it's better it's all great which i feel quite skeptical (laughs) of i don't know if i believe that it's uh, some places have definitely gotten better but i i think the fact that it created such visceral reactions within the industry it depicts is the sign that it did something pretty special i think i hope it does i mean again we're going through kind of lots of awards and i you know at the the end of the day i don't really give a monkeys about awards but i think that that's the kind of film that needs to get recognition particularly because of its production does does get some recognition and and philip i know they're making a tv series out of it but i hope the people involved do get to go on to make more more films okay your number three is again. This is this is a very me answer. It's night. Stop apologizing for your choices. No, but it's it's <laughs> it just makes me laugh when I look at my own choices and I'm like, that's so me. Uh, it's Nightmare Alley, which is interesting. I've seen a lot of the best ten lists from the year so far put Pinocchio on it. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I thought was beautiful, wonderful, but Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley is the Guillermo del Toro movie of this year for me, and also because I think it it perfectly encompasses everything that he is as an artist, while ironically being his first film that is not about anything supernatural directly. I mean, there's tarot and supposed speaking to the dead in it, but there's no actual like monsters in it. Because I'm sure, as everyone knows, because he likes to say this in interviews, <laughs> the thing that he really fears most is is mankind. And I think that made him the ideal candidate and someone who would naturally connect with William Lindsay Gresham's novel, which is also fantastic. I love that book. Uh, and he what he really brings out of it is the idea of, like, fate and judgment and shame and how that really just destroys people from the inside out. When I went to see this film at a press screening, I told everybody afterwards, oh, the baby in the jar, because when Bradley Cooper's character, Stan Carlyle, first comes to the circus, he sees Willem Dafoe's like collection of oddities and they include a baby in a jar called Baby Enoch with a third eye and immediately I was like that baby's God and I know that baby is watching Bradley Cooper and judging his actions and that there will be comeuppance paid by the end of this film because that baby has the power to enact (laughs) uh All of my friends were like, you're being ridiculous. What on earth are you talking about? And then I had the immense pleasure and honor of talking to Guillermo del Toro about this film. 
And he said, yes, baby Enoch is God. You are correct. And I've never felt more vindicated in my life. So I think the reason that Nightmare Alley is number three, that's my very roundabout way of explaining, that I do think Guillermo del Toro and I, we are thinking on the same wavelength. (laughs) And everything that he tried to communicate in the film, as he was telling me during this interview, and it was like 45 minutes long, he did. He barely needed to explain it to me because I was like, "I get it. No, I understand. I understand exactly what you're doing with this movie." Uh, and that's the real. I think that's one of the great pleasures of watching films is when you do find something that seems to speak in exactly the same language as you. Like I find that sometimes quite miraculous. Where you're like, "Oh wow!" Especially when it's a way that maybe with your peers, with your friends, your family don't seem to necessarily understand this part of you and then you go see it in a film and you're like oh my god (laughs) wow like do we share a brain this is incredible i really enjoyed nightmare la i know i had a long conversation with neil about it because he was he was less impressed but i i thought it was his best film since pan's labyrinth i have to say and i think it's because he was reigning in the monsters and the fantasy and there was an element of the ca- I mean, again, you know, there's a lot of allegory and, and, and that stuff that you were talking about there. But th- there is a sense in which the, the character is a, uh, is a hustler and then he's encountering the, this femme fatale who knows what he's about. And so it's playing around with kind of classical genre, you know, neo-noir stuff. It's beautiful to look at and really amazingly, you know, an amazing production design and all that, kind of, which you would you kind of expect, you know what I mean? You're not going to say, oh, well, Guillermo, you, you kind of didn't get that right in terms of the aesthetics, you know? That's not the kind of film I'd put on my top 10, if you see what I mean. You know, it's it's kind of, in, in you know, similar to what you were saying about um, some of your other examples. Yeah, I think out of my entire list, this is the most... This and The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne I put in my top 10, which I know will not have featured on anyone else's list. And I, again, I... I, I I hesitated originally when I even gave it five stars. I said, oh, this, I'm going to be the only person doing this. And people are going to think I'm silly. But I think when you connect to something in the material, it's really hard to then try and think about (laughs) the minor flaws, right? Because those just don't matter anymore when a film moves you. And I think that's what I've always stood by. And I feel like... I mean, going back to film Twitter, you know, when people are really critical of other people's takes on films are going, oh, why did you enjoy that? I go, well, I find that silly because we are all people trying to communicate to each other. When an artist makes a film, they're trying to communicate with you. And if you respond, if you go, I hear you, then that's something personal to you and nobody else can speak on behalf of that. So... Yeah, it's been hard. I've had to sort of like, because there's been years in the past where I've sort of held back. I remember Crimson Peak, Guillermo del Toro, another great example where I I think that's maybe my favorite film of his. <laughs> and I was so hesitant about praising it at the time because a lot of people were kind of dinging on it. But it's just because, yeah, I just, there's something about what he makes that I really connect with and I need to be more confident <laughs> about that but i'm getting there 
to me, the answer is on, on Twitter, why did you like that? It's like, why are you asking me why I like that? Mm. Because it's saying something more about you again than it is about me. The same conversation we had about, about films. But I mean, again, most men who are not in the public eye and us on the podcast particularly, well, we don't get any grief really at all. Nobody calls us out and stuff. But I know that like, obviously it's a different situation for women on Twitter more generally, but female film critics talking about movies is something that does seem to trigger a lot of uh, men, let, let's say, who have their very strident opinions. Do you know what I mean? I know it, it, I, I don't know how much grief you get in that, in, in that sense, but it's always a, a weird one, I think, when people are commenting on somebody else's intuitive, emotional, intellectual reactions to something that they've really, that's really resonated with them. Yeah, and I think often people don't even do it maliciously. They just go, oh, I didn't like this. It's really weird that you liked it. And they just think that they're like, they they think that they're trying to start a conversation, but I feel like no conversation starts with the words, I didn't like this thing you liked, or I liked this thing you didn't like. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Okay, yeah. I I can't help you. I feel like I'm in the... Where do you go from yeah, there? Yeah, I feel like I'm in the window of Burger King and they've driven up and just been like, I hate your burgers. And I feel like, <laughs> um, ma'am, I can't help you. <laughs> do you want a burger or do you not want a burger? <laughs> Please just tell me, give me a real answer. It often feels like that. Yeah, somebody comes up to me and says, I don't like your burgers. This relationship is over, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I never asked you to. I think that's the other thing. It's like, I never asked yeah, yeah, yeah. anyone to read my reviews. You do not have yeah, to yeah, if you yeah. do not want to. I am not enforcing. I'm not chaining anyone to the cinema seat and forcing them to watch The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. <laughs> I'm just saying I liked it. And if you would also like to see it, I would love that. But please... I'm not the complaints department for the film. Yeah, other reviews and other podcasts are available. Exactly. You know? Okay, so on to my number two then. Um, so, uh, yeah, my number two is Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy by Ryosuke Hamaguchi. I clearly like this director without kind of investigating or feeling like I'm following everything that he does, but Drive My Car was my last year's number one. So he clearly kind of twangs all the right cinematic strings for me. And th there's a case to be made that this is just as good as Drive My Car in a, in, in a very different way. And one of the reasons why I liked it so much is because I've started to try at, at work, I've started to try and teach a lot more with short films. So instead of showing students features, which I mean, they don't make features at, at undergrad level, they make shorts. So I'm trying to use short films to, as examples, let's say, of good filmmaking. So this is an anthology film of three short stories, which are kind of... If they're not directly interconnected, but if they are interconnected, it's thematically pretty much in quite broad terms, I think, with regards to how lives, human lives sort of change or develop through a combination of unreasoned interventions or behaviors and then and then kind of chance, really, you know. So that leads us to the, the conclusion, or I, I think what the film is saying is that control and rationality is a are things that we cling to as a form of illusion to kind of get us through the day, as it were, you know? So the first story is a, is a love tri triangle about the kind of judgments and frivolous criteria by which we either bond or reject people. The second story is about a university professor whose reputation is ruined by a student. That was my favourite one. I don't know whether that's because I'm a university lecturer. It was it kind of weirded me out in this way. But this is incredibly erotic yet problematic monologue sequence in the middle of this of this short story. It's as riveting as anything I've seen this year on on, on the power of the voice. And the last story is about two 
old school acquaintances who accidentally meet and this kind of brings up regrets and traumas about their adolescence and it kind of taps into that that sort of fantasy that you have that you could go back to your adolescent or school years but take all of your experience and your confidence that you have now with you you know what I mean but yeah it's just it's a, again a, a wonderful piece of cinema by somebody who I think is just a, 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 a you know, masterful storyteller in, in cinema yeah I, th- I think it is that thing of of the stories don't seem to be connected but they are and you only really register it in a subconscious way i mean that's at least how i came away from it feeling like oh oh it doesn't seem like they what was the thematic link because that's the kind of critic brain going oh what is the thing and it's like well actually it's one of those things where it's hard to really put it into words but i could feel it in my brain oh yeah there are shared emotions here and there's shared pain and shame and i really liked the third story i think that was my favorite um as you said, yeah, just about the image that sticks out to me is when they is when they first meet and they're like on the. I saw this near the beginning of the year, so I'm like, again, my memory's not great. <laughs> they like meet at the top of the escalator, and there's just this like sort of odd tension in the air, and that's such a specific feeling. But to capture it so well through image, that I think that's why I remember it. I personally really struggle to describe why his movies are great, <laughs> but it's because it's the subtlest things have the biggest impact. And yeah, just the the placement of the camera, watching those people beat, where you kind of feel like you're a wire, but you're also in the situation, but you're not. And it's this bizarre tension on top of the tension, and it just it nails it, because I've had this kind of not that same situation but similar situations. <laughs> There's a little bit of a connection. I mean, again, I don't want to sort of be reductive here, but there is a connection between Hamaguchi and, and uh, Hong Sang-soo's work for me in terms of that sort of sense of the subtlety of the real, where, I mean, it's interesting what you're talking about. That It's almost kind of like the opposite of the, the kind of fantasy stuff that you like. But I, I think what it does is reduce it. The, these filmmakers do is they reduce things, the, the ordinary and the banal even, but minimize them and minimize them until something really elemental kind of comes out, you know? Yeah, and I do think when it comes to to films that deal in, in the real, what really works for me is when, and I think I would say this is true of, of this film, that, yeah, when you would do something so down to the mundane that it develops this, like, epic quality, because it's yeah. so f- focused on this tiny detail. I'm trying to, it's weird because I'm talking about very broad terms, but it's very specific as well. But a tiny detail that becomes all consuming. And then that does gain an almost like fantastical, yeah, epic, like monstrous quality to it. Like, yeah, meeting with somebody you haven't seen in a long time. It's that's such a banal thing. But the way that it's presented in this film, it gains this, this sort of heightened i think the emotions are really heightened even though what you're watching on screen is incredibly nuanced and and sort of uneventful (laughs) i don't know it's weird it's all it's all clashing things but somehow it works okay so this the next film is your number two and also my number five so we can uh, comment on on that together well, this actually leads on perfectly from what I was talking about because it's Absolutely. After Sun, 
It's a debut film by Charlotte Wells, which, you know, you would maybe think surprising in my super fantastical, <laughs> surreal, crazy stuff top 10, but it's specifically because it is such a an almost non-story, just about a dad and a daughter, and then on holiday, and they're kind of just doing stuff. <laughs> really, that's the plot. <laughs> uh, but there is something about what Charlotte Wells did, and the framework that it's the older Sophie watching her memories through videotapes, or also she's recalling them while in a space that's sort of like a club, maybe not a club, or maybe the recesses of her mind. We don't really know. But that framework so perfectly expresses how we as humans process memory, which is obviously not as a pure objective thing. We kind of do look through our own memories like VHS where we scroll forward and back because you're usually trying to find something, right? You're trying to recall like, oh, what was the moment where this thing happened or this thing in my life changed? And that's really what this movie is about because, and I like that Charlotte Wells never tells us what happened to the dad who's played by Paul Mescal. We, we don't know and you can speculate what well, I had my own theory but it's really not the point of it it's more about Sophie being like something bad happened with my dad and whatever that was the origins of it was during this holiday that we had in Turkey what was the trigger point and that's what the entire movie is it's just her sifting through memories of nothing at all, really, but they all gain this profound emotional significance just through the act of memory. And I was watching the movie just being like, how is, how, how is she doing this? <laughs> because memory is a thing that, to me at least, I don't know how to put it into words. I don't know how to describe it in concrete ways. And she did that. And it feels like a miracle but although I don't like using the word miracle because it takes the agency away from her. Like, she created the miracle. I guess she's like the Jesus figure in this situation. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's a really fantastic piece of work, especially for some, you know, for somebody's first feature piece of work. In terms of the trauma of Paul Mescal's character, I really like the way that through the movie you get these little clues that he's, you know, he is traumatized, but he's also probably depressive and, you know, he's doing this Tai Chi and he's got these books that are about meditation and he's trying to keep control of himself. Clearly, he's gone through this relationship where he's had this kid, you know, early in life and the relationship hasn't hasn't worked out. But then also he's going off in the night, isn't he? he I, to, to the nightclubs, he's leaving the child there, going off and kind of getting wasted, it seems to me, and then coming back you know, in the morning. I think I, either that's happening is in his imagination or it's ha is actually happening, you know? And the thing is then that that allows a crossover point to his child and her older self that allows them towards the end of the film to kind of meet in this moment of imagination or moment of, it's not even imagination or flash forward or flashback, but it's a cinematic device that allows them to meet together as adults. And it reminded me a little bit of Petit Mamon in that sense, completely different movie, but that sort of sense of having a connection with your parent, but you are both at the same age, you know what I mean? So it was a fascinating use of time in that sense. The sort of denouement, the cinematic denouement and the way that she did that kind of aesthetically and using sound was absolutely brilliant. And the other crunch scene to me which kind of pays off 
through the slowness of the film was when that moment where the daughter is lying with her head on on his lap and she's he's just stroking her hair and saying that thing of you know that many many parents will say which is you can do whatever you want you can do this you can do that and through the film you can see the fear that he doesn't want her to have the traumatic childhood that he is you know it's alluded to that he's had and he's absolutely terrified of that i think you know and she it simmers underneath their entire relationship you know what his trauma has been in the past and what her future is going to look like which we get little snippets of yeah <laughs> I, every time i think about it i'm like i it's such an achievement and yet i did it for two which really begs the question what was number one then <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so what is... Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first, number one-wise? You go first. So I I have picked the Northmen because it's historically in Hollywood cinema, there's been such a struggle to represent history on film and this, this internal strife between creating something that is exciting and accessible for audiences while also not just completely making it up <laughs> like gladiator did it was the tension between gladiator which is a, an incredible wonderful movie but is such nonsense and the fall of the roman empire which is quite historically accurate and is good but it completely tanked to the box office and kind of killed the historical epic in one <laughs> in one swoop. And so I was taking all of those feelings into the Northmen, and I feel like what Robert Eggers achieved is something that has been so, so rarely done, which is a perfect union between a crazy exciting movie where Ethan Hawke is farting and crawling around like a dog and there's a Valkyrie screaming and Nicole Kidman is doing that Nicole Kidman thing that we were talking about earlier and Alexander Skarsgård looks like a brick of, he, he looks like Stretch Armstrong it's I don't know how its body works in that movie it's crazy I was like how does he even stand he can't even put his arms together <laughs> And it has that sort of mainstream, like, classical Hollywood, just exciting appeal to it. And yet, it's really historically accurate. <laughs> and because I'm such a history nerd, that to me is a bit like After Sun, I was calling it a miracle. I think The Northman is an even bigger miracle, which is why I put it at number one. Because it has solved the problem that has plagued Hollywood for generations and decades of how do you make a good historical non-nonsense epic. And it's The Northman. And it's just beautifully shot and overwhelming and that sequence of them attacking the village the berserkers attacking the village and it's the tracking shot of seeing like the devastation and the bloodshed and the ugliness of it and then the warriors come out of it and they are not victorious they are completely sucked of their souls and i think that's really important too because it's a representation of the viking era and i like the viking era a lot but obviously has been turned into quite malicious propaganda over the years by white supremacists and other sort of similar beliefs. And I liked that Robert Eggers sort of 
uh, gave us the ultimate rejection of that. I know it's been misinterpreted by some people and still co-opted by white supremacists because they don't have great media literacy. But the film itself is such a fantastic rejection of ideas of heroism and and yeah, the good old Viking uh, uh, pillaging. It it's such a full throated rejection of it, and it just made I got to the end of it and I was sort of emotional just because of how excited I was <laughs> not because this ending was sad I was just so excited by the movie in a kind of kid way and I can't it makes me excited to think about it and that's such a simplistic reason to choose it as number one but I'm gonna I'm being honest this year <laughs> I think that the best thing about it is it does have the courage of its convictions when it comes to the idea of simplistic heroism is not what this is about and it's pillage heavy and it's kind of like the main hero is standing by and the main hero again that's the wrong word but the protagonist is standing by why while people are being emptied into these big thatched barns as it were and set and set on fire it, and it doesn't it doesn't mess around when it when it comes to that the idea that there isn't a kind of a, a western 20th century moral code going on here and we have to get on board with that as a, as an audience the problem i've got with it is that i didn't see it at the bloody cinema so i felt i was missing out because of that i think it, again i'm not one to say like say for example i went to see I went to see After Sun the other day just so that I'd seen it before before we and maybe it's recency bias why it was so high on my list but I enjoyed it that much and I'm not saying that you shouldn't go see a film like After Sun at the cinema because you definitely should but like you definitely should see Northman at the cinema it, even on I've got a decent telly and what have you but still I think that what watching at home on TV requires I think is mo- is more of a a sophistication or complex in in terms of well in terms of narrative on the basic level but in in a sense this really is just a revenge story it's not it's not too much more than that i mean there's a lot of kind of symbolic and allegorical stuff going on and i think it relates a lot to what you're talking about in terms of the idea of history and what these who these characters were that we've seen time and time again at the cinema and reframing them in a way that doesn't shirk that idea. And even like with, you know, we, talk, we talked before we actually started recording about the Banshees of Inisherin. The, the best Banshee this year was Nicole Kidman, that's for sure. And, it, it, you know, everybody is, is has bought into this without a shadow of a doubt. William, Willem Dafoe and, you know, Ethan Hawke, as you say. The, the action sequences are fantastic. Anya Taylor-Joy is, is really kind of embodies that, that figure so well, I think. And yeah, I mean, it's it, it's amazing, an amazingly exciting movie. And again, having read that article about people going to the cinema, it's just a shame that I think these kinds of movies don't hit in the same way as perhaps the era of when Gladiator became such a successful movie, because Gladiator was a massive movie when that when that came out. I mean, I take your criticisms of it, but you know, it really landed and won oh, no. Oscars I and all love that. Gladiator. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gladiator is incredible, but I think it, it is just a fact that it's horrifically historically inaccurate. But it's an incredible movie. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's kind of like sad that the Northman kind of can't hit in the same way because we're in a different time now. Yeah, I was actually kind of I was devastated when it didn't do very well at the box office because we talk about what can the alternative to superhero movies be and to me 
you know, this is again the thing, I, I don't want to force people to like it, but watching The Northman to me, it had everything that, that a Marvel or a DC movie had. It had all the excitement and the action and the violence and the scale and the characters and the hero's journey. Again, we're talking about, you know, not quite hero, but he still takes that arc. It's the same story as Hamlet, essentially. Um, and, and so it really... I got quite frustrated because I was like, if people can't get into the Northmen, like, are we really in a hopeless situation that people, and this is not a judgmental thing towards other people because I get it. Like people don't, there's not a lot of money flooding around for people to go to the cinema every week. People have to make very difficult decisions about what they want to see. And Marvel, Disney, the one thing that's really in their favor is consistency i feel like when i go into one of their movies i know there's like a pretty decent chance it's not going to be actively terrible <laughs> i'm not going to have a really horrific time there is like a standard of quality and i do stand by that with disney stuff so i get why people feel very comforted by that and they just don't want to take the risk um, but it just yeah it's really maddening and sad that the Northman is a risk now when it's like, it's Alexander Skarsgård with an axe and he's chopping people's heads off. It's so fun. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, the reason why the Northman didn't do so great is probably the same reason why Top Gun did do so great because people can kind of go, oh, I know what that is already. I'm, I'm willing to take that chance. You know, so it, which is again about goes back to what we talked about at the beginning about that that's just not sustainable forever. If we're just and it's really sad, we're just recycling and recycling and recycling. All yeah, the time. I, it does make me wonder if Top Gun One, if the original Top Gun came out this year instead of Top Gun Maverick, would we be having a very different conversation? Yeah, we probably would be. We probably would be. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Please say something uh, more hopeful. <laughs> we will do for sure. But I mean, I would definitely recommend seeing it. That's for sure. If you want a kind of, especially over Christmas and you want some proper no holes barred action, you know, even even just on that level, if you're not that bothered about Vikings and stuff, it's it's money is there, you know, on the screen as it were, right? Okay. One film that you probably won't be able to see over Christmas is my number one. <laughs> and um, it probably reflects... You know, again, the difference between you and me in terms of what we what we like, which is quite interesting. So my number one film of the year is A Peach Upon Widow's Ethical's Memoria. And, you know, but maybe our audience for the collective groan when, because we, we talked about this at the beginning of the year. But yeah, it's just enigmatic, contemplative, almost spiritual journey into the resonances between memory and time and nature. It's just... An incredible film to see at the cinema, which is where you have to see it because the director, you know, didn't hasn't kind of released it. It's very difficult now to 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 see it. It's it, it's a comment almost on the the auditorium experience, particularly and and the relationship between sound and vision. It has a sort of art gallery quality to it in many ways as well. Yeah, I mean, just Tilda Swinton plays a an expatriate living in Colombia. At the in the beginning of the movie, she kind of hears this sonic boom, and she thinks it's kind of coming from outside. But then later, we realise it's it's actually either manifesting in her head or it's coming from some other place. And she she forms this relationship with the sound designer, who she kind of uses to 
to to try and explain what the sound is because she can't make head nor tail of it. And at the same time, she com- becomes interested in this excavation project that's being carried out at the same place, the same hospital um, where her sister is being treated. But it there's no kind of story or plot to it, really. It's impossible to describe. But she ends up going, becoming more and more disassociated from what's going on with her sister and, and with her life. because And she almost kind of gets drawn out into this countryside. You know, you could argue because of the sound is kind of pushing her. We don't actually see this take place in a, in a transition moment, but she encounters this this character who's essentially he's a kind of like a, a local fisherman out in the countryside. And his name is Hernan, which is the same name of as the sound designer who she was working with before. So there's this kind of idea of, is this the older version of this same guy? But he starts to discuss with her the connection to the earth and his sleep and his dreams and his memories. And it, there's one point towards the end where they kind of hold hands and appear to be able to connect to each other through their memories of the past. And then at the very end, it, it just goes all 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I was just like, holy shit, have you really just gone there? And I was like, oh, you really have? That is awesome. I'm all in for this film. And and. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot said about the immersiveness of cinema and sound, but this takes that to a kind of level of physical transcendence, which was just unbelievable, I thought. Yeah, so this this was in my top 10, and I think the only reason it's not my number one is everything we've discussed, that my brain's sort of not built for that. <laughs> for that sort of level of quiet and contemplation, I I think I need a lot of ideas to chew on. And I was thinking about... In terms of films that sort of cross the boundaries between art projects and narratives, I think my equivalent to memory would be Russian arc because it has that same drifting quality, but they're telling you a lot of things. And I'm like, oh, I have lots of things for my brain to chew on. <laughs> but Memoria, in terms of like a more objective perspective on it, is it probably should be number one film of the year. It is absolutely phenomenal. I think that is the thing everything they said and the amount of ideas that are in it but the fact that they unspool in such a sort of again as we were talking about before sort of like totally subtle non-intrusive way where you get to the end of film and you feel like you've not thought about anything you have thought about stuff (laughs) and you have gone oh god what's my what is my relationship i it made me think a lot about this is stupid but I listen to a lot of ASMR and the relationship between sound and body and how a sound, like an ASMR when someone's like brushing hair, it's such an an ordinary banal sound, but it can provoke not only a physical effect, but a profound emotional effect. And I think Memoria, how it explores that sound that Tilda Swinton hears really connects to a lot of ideas of why how does our brain attach so much emotion to to something as simple as like a a, a long <laughs> and i think that's an incredible an incredible thing to explore and and a very unusual topic that i i feel like i've never heard discussed about in a film and i felt really like oh wow okay this is 
this is something that's so common to us because of these ideas of ASMR and, and all this like liminal spaces and, and effects of subliminal effects of images and sounds. We all know about this, but we don't have the conversation about it. And I appreciate that Memoria had the conversation about it. In the last, you know, six, seven years we've been doing the podcast, I've become much more interested in the sound element of films. And it just so tapped into that, especially, you know, you get these scenes where there's like a 20 minute scene in the sound design studio where he's trying to figure out what this sound sounds like in her, in her mind. But then it also, it goes into this idea of physical objects have a wavelength, you know, they actually emanate a sound. Now we can't hear it as human beings, but they, they are making sounds and the same with human bodies. They are making sounds and it's, it's alluding to this idea that like this guy Hernan can kind of attune himself somehow to the, the the sounds of nature and therefore access different states of being. I mean, and, and again, I know that all sounds, that sounds just like totally, you know, flaky and a bit out there, but it relates a little bit to that idea. I think that sound is apparently the, the first sense that, that we recognize when we're in the womb as children, as babies, you know, and, and, and that sort of idea of, of, our orientation to the outside world is is much more attuned to sound than we think it is because we we tend to think we're we're, we're visual beings which we are you know in the in the sort of uh, primary sense but the way that that sound organizes our relationship to the world but then also in sin in filmmaking organizes our relationship to our experience of film I think like as you say is something that criminally is not co- reflected or talked about or written about as much as it, you know, by by far as much as just the, the visual impact of films is. Yeah, talking about the, the wavelengths of objects, because I was reading an article recently about this room, I think it's in New York in a recording studio that's meant to be the quietest place on earth. And it's so insulated that there are all these, you know, it doesn't seem like it's quite true, but urban legends or rumors that if you go in that room, you will go mad because there is no, in our normal reality, there's no true idea of silence. And in fact, our brain is constantly communicating with the environment around us and the soundscape that we are in. And I think, yeah, I think what I liked about Memoria is that a lot of the soundscapes were not obvious and i found myself listening more carefully because i was trying to pick up what the the sort of protagonist sound of the scene was and there would be something in it that the film was wanting you to listen to but it would really take you like the whole scene (laughs) to figure out what it was and i think that that feels very true to to our relationship with sound is that there's always something to listen to but we don't necessarily know what it is yeah, fantastic. You know, that's a that's a really uh, that's a really astute kind of insight, I think, in terms of the way that we consider sound in our everyday lives, but also in, in in cinema and the way the film taps into that for sure. So yeah, listen, Clarice, thank you so much for doing that. Um, I hope that was uh, you know worth going through the, the the year and your your picks in in such depth. Thanks so much for taking the the time out. I I really um, appreciate it. Have you got? Any any you know big articles or reviews coming up that you know that you can kind of point to or anything kind of in the next few months that you're looking forward to seeing perhaps? Well, I just published today. I published my review of Babylon because the embargo dropped, and I thought that film was absolutely phenomenal. 
and I, I, it's again a film where I was watching going, I know this is going to be very divisive. <laughs> People are going to hate this. But I encourage the discussion and I think what it has to say about not only the silent era and the misconceptions that we have about it, but also uh, the nature of sacrifice and art and and are these beautiful images really worth all the pain that we know goes into making them or went into making them at least during this period throughout a lot of Hollywood history um, I think it sounds like a question that a lot of movies ask and I know a lot of people have been saying Babylon oh it's a love letter to cinema I think it's a lot more nuanced than that and a lot more complicated so I would say to people don't assume this is going to be like everything else. Even like La La Land, which I adored, but that is very straightforwardly a love letter to Hollywood. <laughs> this is entirely different. It's like the anti-La La Land, the demon dark side La La Land. <laughs> I'm definitely looking forward to uh, seeing that and we'll link to that. We'll link to your review on the uh, show notes for the podcast. Um yeah, thanks very much for, for your time, Clarice. It's been really great talking to you. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you.